I'm Rebecca. And I'm Sarah. We're two friends who talk a lot about mental health and wanted to share some of these conversations at a time when people might be struggling a little more. I'm a clinical psychologist and I often ask my clients to think about having a bucket symbolising their capacity for life stresses. Some things add to the bucket, some things empty it. These are different for everyone and people are aware of and manage their bucket to different degrees. We're going to talk to a range of people about their buckets in the hope that it might help you with yours. This is a drop in the bucket. And this is episode 10. Welcome back everybody. Thank you for joining us again. This week we have Bethany and Jess with us and we feel really privileged to have you guys with us this week because you are going to talk about your experiences of eating disorders and that is something that we really didn't know how to ask people to come on and talk about really but you got in touch with us and said that you think it is important that people do talk about it. So we're hugely grateful to you and uh, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. (laughs) Honestly, when Bethy's message came through, I was like, we'd just been talking about how much we wanted to cover this topic, but we didn't know how. So thank you so much, guys. Oh, it's a God thing. God is gay. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to start off with your icebreaker questions before we get into it. So first of all, if you had your own late night talk show, who would you invite on to be your first guest? See... Bethany and I were talking about this because we both love Graham Norton and it's like <laughs> the black hole of like YouTube. Um, like I think maybe Benedict Cumberbatch. Mm. Have you seen his interview? It's yes, so I have. Yes, that is a great <laughs> shout. Excellent shout. I would say Jennifer Lawrence because she's also hilarious. Have you seen her on Ellen? Yes. yes. She's so real. Like she doesn't try and make herself all polished in Hollywood. Like she's just who she is. Do you know, I think they're going to have to be on my reserve list for that. You know, if you could invite any three people around for dinner. Oh, at yeah, the yeah. moment, I think it would be J.K. Rowling, J.K. Rowling, Michelle Obama and Jesus. So Benedict Cumberbatch and Jennifer Lawrence could be on the, the waiting list. Like if any Love of those can't make it. <laughs> I mean, look, we can now have six people in your garden. That's six people. <laughs> that is a good there point. Go. No need to cut it down. Um, so if you had to delete all but three apps from your phone, which ones would you keep? I think messages, because I reply better on that. Netflix and maybe YouTube. It's a good procrastinating tool. Yeah. <laughs> I would say Amazon Prime because I've recently become very addicted to Grey's Anatomy and I don't think I could do it. Yeah. I know it's great isn't it (laughs) um so I don't think I could do without that and then like I'd like to say I wouldn't delete Instagram because like I know it's kind of a bit toxic it can be but I'm literally addicted to it and yeah Sarah's nodding (laughs) um and then probably Facebook because at uni you have to like keep up with all the events and stuff so it's very helpful to have like Facebook events definitely true and if you could become suddenly fluent in any language, which one would you choose? French, because literally all, all my mum's side can speak French. My dad can speak French like fluently. I just feel really left out. Like, it's really annoying. <laughs> and I think I'd speak Italian. I've never tried it before, but I think it sounds really pretty. So I, I started learning Italian on 
have you seen the Duolingo app? Duolingo, yeah. Oh my God. It popped up um, on my phone a little while ago and I thought, yeah, why not? Let's give that a try. And now I'm a little bit addicted. I have to do my like <laughs> certain number of experience points of Italian every single day. But it is, it's beautiful language. Yeah. I always enjoyed if I went to dinner at Frankie and Benny's and you go to the bathroom and it plays like Italian teaching Does you something in the bathroom. Yes. So I'd always come back from the bathroom having learned a new Italian <laughs> phrase. Oh, I miss Frankie and Benny's. Oh, me too. Oh. Oh. okay here are your quick five you ready tea or coffee coffee, coffee. sweet or savory sweet <laughs> morning or night 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 flying or teleportation flying teleportation. oh i thought we were gonna get the same <laughs> <laughs> cats or dogs 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 so tell us a little bit about yourselves and what your experience of mental health is so my name's Jessica Bingham. I am going into my third year of uni. And before I begin my story, me and Bethany just wanted to emphasise that everyone's experience of eating disorders are different and any eating disorder is worthy of help. So for those listening who struggle with an eating disorder, please remember that eating disorders love a good competition. So any difference to our stories doesn't make you more or less deserving of help. But for me... My eating disorder, I think, stems from three different factors. Firstly, insecurity. Secondly, family trauma. And lastly, a need to control. I've always been quite insecure about um, body image since I can remember. And I know this is definitely not a unique experience. Everyone, boy or girl, experiences insecurity in some way. But for me, I was especially insecure about my ears, um, which sounds like a really bizarre thing to focus on but I was born with ears that stuck out and I was very self-conscious about them like ever since I can remember and today you wouldn't know it because my parents saved up for me to have cosmetic surgery and I would love to say that I regret it but that would be a lie because it was something I wanted since I was like seven but I know that those underlying body image problems that I had like having something that was such such a big problem from such a young age that surgery didn't solve it at all and school is difficult for everyone um, balancing social and academic pressures is exhausting and this got harder for me from age 14 to 18 because um, there was always someone in my immediate or extended family who was ill Eventually it ended with my granddad sadly passing away a week and a half into my first year at uni. And I think I was in denial about how it all affected me. But one of the clearest emotions I felt was anger. I was so angry at God for putting my family through it. I didn't understand what had happened. I didn't understand why my grandfather, who was the picture of health, had died of cancer. And I think the combination of insecurity and these events fueled my eating disorder to properly take hold because it was the only way I felt in control. And I think I've always had an interesting relationship to food. I was a very picky child and then I learned from the age of about 14 that I could control food. And for me, controlling food was a way to rebel, a way to be different. And it was also a challenge, a challenge that I felt I could succeed in. And although I wouldn't have been diagnosed with an eating disorder, the combination of insecurity and a rapidly changing family life established this mental connection that food was something that I could control. And this connection didn't really trigger any 
like massive problems until my second year because um, I either had my family or there was a meal plan system at uni that my parents paid for and I felt too guilty to not use it but when I went in second year I quickly went downhill because I had a mental image of what I wanted to look like and I knew I could abuse food as a way of getting there but the reality was that even if I did get to x weight or look like a planned it was never going to be enough my brain became a calorie calculator and every day it was a challenge to see how poorly I could eat I didn't understand that actually food is essential like I didn't believe that basic rule of human life applied to me my brain was so consumed by it that I struggled to concentrate on work and things like work and church commitments became an excuse to not eat. I didn't realise how trapped I was until a church student weekend away and I just I just found I couldn't cope. I was crying my eyes out most of the weekend and um, God spoke to one of my best friends and just said the word eating and from then on I tried to get help but I wasn't really committed and I wasn't getting enough support. By summer, I, it was impacting all areas of my life. I had said to everyone that I was going to try to recover, but I couldn't do it. I knew if I wanted to recover, I needed to surrender all control to God, but I wasn't prepared to do it, even though I found that all the promises that my eating disorder had promised were lies. I couldn't just, I couldn't just let go. I couldn't just eat birthday cake and enjoy it. Like I couldn't go out for a meal without compensating. I couldn't, I didn't feel freer just because I was in a small body. I had to give up my summer job and I didn't completely enjoy my first friend holiday because I was either tired or cold. I was sent to Cotswold House and was diagnosed with anorexia nervosa last summer. And in September, I tried to go to uni. I tried and lasted for six weeks, but I shouldn't really have been sent back. I couldn't think of anything but food and that's not a good combination with trying to write a dissertation. And in the end it became too much and I came home and was admitted into hospital in December. My eating disorder made me believe that I would only feel ill enough if I got admitted into hospital but of course that was another one of anorexia's lies. There's nothing glamorous about having to ask to go out for a 10 minute walk or having to be in hospital on Christmas Eve but it did save my life and I finally could let go of some control that my eating disorder had believed, made me believe I had. It taught me a lot and I made some amazing friends but I had to sacrifice a lot to have a chance of recovery. Hospital meant that I was actually very well prepared for lockdown because I'd effectively been in lockdown for the past four months and the coronavirus forced me to, to leave hospital where I had become very comfortable. I was medically ready to leave and COVID just gave me a push to accept being discharged. I know a lot of people have found lockdown to be a real trigger, but for me, it's given me permission to stop. And I've actually found that I've thrived in this time. It's meant that I now eat with my family, which a couple of months I would have thought was the worst possible idea. And that means I spend more time with my family, which I love. My day is now structured around eating, which is necessary at the moment, and is the reality of recovering from an eating disorder. But even with all the incredible support from my family and Cotswold House, I wouldn't have progressed so much without Bethany. We knew each other before either of us had an eating disorder, um, which means that we can both support each other in the process of getting back to the people we want to be. I firmly believe that I can recover 
and that will be thanks to Cotswold House, my family, my friends and Bethany. Oh, so beautiful. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> thanks. I just, like, I just think honest sharing is one of the most beautiful things in the world. Like to hear someone genuinely share their heart and their experience and be vulnerable. Like vulnerability, I think, is just one of the most beautiful things. And so for you to like be willing to share that thank you so much for like trusting us to be a vehicle for like sharing your story because yeah thank you like wanted to share it and this was like the perfect way to to share the story and not be like afraid that that's what's happened and like you said you know no eating disorder is the same no experience is the same so bethany you right to share your experience yeah so jess and i are both similar in the fact that we both have anorexia and we both have been to hospital but like neither of those things like sum up eating disorders entirely like we are a very very small portion of a very very wide disease so again like I just want to reiterate what Jess was saying like just because you don't have the same experience as us it doesn't mean like you're less valid or anything so similarly to Jess I think I've always kind of struggled with body image I grew up dancing So I was always very aware of my body, like when you had to be in a leotard in front of a class of girls. And like, I remember I'd always have slightly weird eating habits as a teenager. Like, so I'd always eat less towards the end of the week when I knew I had to dance. And I went away like traveling around the world doing music. And because I've been vegetarian for a long time, like they would have really, really like, they couldn't cater for vegetarians in in Europe. So I'd end up not eating a lot over the week losing a bit of weight and then kind of like congratulating myself for doing that and but my parents were kind of always able to get me out of it and like get me back into a regular eating habit so like Jess like I think I've always had slightly weird habits throughout my teenage years but it never really became a problem until I went to uni so I remember going on a church weekend away I think it was November of first year so like I was very very new to uni I didn't really know anyone and I remember that was the first time when I really really struggled with eating like eating in front of people I just really really struggled and just barely ate all weekend and from there like it just completely crept up on me um it wasn't like an instant thing like I didn't set out trying to lose weight I just felt the need to control my food and like and then I kind of made the connection with oh if I stop eating like my body will look different and I'll look skinnier and I saw that as a good thing so I got worse and worse over first year and I came home in the summer And my mum was like, I need to send you to the doctor because I think you've got anemia because you're always cold and tired, which of course I was cold and tired because of the eating disorder, not because I had anemia. But I went to my GP and she took one look at me and urgently referred me to Cotswold House, which is the eating disorder place in Oxford. And I was seen by a doctor straight away. And she was like, okay, you've got all summer, like we're going to do this. We're going to get you back to a healthy weight and you can get ready for uni. But... I was just not ready to recover. Like I wasn't really engaging. I barely put on any weight. I was barely eating more. I just stopped my weight from dropping further. So September time came and they were like, they didn't want me to go back to uni, but I was very, very stubborn. And I went back anyway. And like Jess, I lasted six weeks and then I got sent back home and then admitted to Cotswold House, which is the same hospital as Jess, but this is like a year before. So we weren't in at the same time. So I was admitted to Cotswold House and I was there until June the following year. So I was there for a very long time and I became very, very comfortable in hospital for sure. And 
I didn't want to leave. I was too scared. Like it's what gave me like permission to eat again. And then I was relapsing before I left, to be honest, like because you go down to being a day patient where you get more time at home. So I was having a lot of time at home and I just wasn't eating. I was losing weight before I was discharged. They didn't massively want to discharge me, but they did anyway because I was starting work. So I went straight back to work over the summer the next week, which probably wasn't the best idea. Um, and I just deteriorated again. And like I was losing weight. I was not engaging in therapy. I was just not ready to get better. And then September time came again, so I was ready to go back to uni, but the uni wouldn't accept me back because my BMI wasn't high enough. So I basically ate my way back to uni. <laughs> I gained a lot of weight in a very short amount of time to get my BMI up to this acceptable BMI to be accepted back at uni. Not fixing any of the problems, not intending to maintain this BMI. So I went back to uni again. And then the whole cycle started again and I started losing weight. I wasn't really getting any help because at this point my BMI was like too high to get specialist support. So I didn't get any help all term um, and I was just deteriorating and like losing weight. And I think that was probably one of the points, even though my BMI wasn't the lowest it's ever been, I was probably mentally worse then than any other time. So I kept deteriorating. I got worse and worse and worse. And then I stopped attending my appointments because I was just not engaging at all. And then I had an urgent ECG and a blood test and my heart, I basically had to go in in the morning and then I got a phone call at night saying I had like problems with my heart beating. I don't really understand it. My, or my, I was going into like kidney failure. My bloods were all over the place. And I was actually on FaceTime to Jess when I got the phone call to, and they were like, you need to go into hospital. So I had to go to the general hospital and be put on like IV drips and oh, it was just like, I think that was like rock bottom for me. Like having to be there, having my mum see me in that state, I collapsed multiple times. It was just, it was awful. It was definitely like probably the lowest point of my life. And they, luckily I saw the consultant while I was there, the eating disorder consultant, and he managed to find me a bed in Exeter for that next week. So I'm so, so lucky and so, so grateful that um, a bed became available for me. And like, that was the real turning point for me. I kind of was like, I can't let this happen again. I can't do this to my family. I can't do this to my friends. Like, this is awful. So then I went into this next admission with the mindset of, this is it, I want to get better this time. And I think all the other patients thought I was really weird because I was so like excited for all the food and like I was really engaging with treatment. And yeah, and since then, so I was also discharged because of Corona. So I sent back home to my family and like, it's been so much better. Like I've definitely had dips since coming home, but now like Jess and I have been doing loads and loads of challenges together. And like, we literally like pick each other up and really help each other. And since then, like, it's just been so much better. And it's so nice to have my life back. Uni hasn't been the, like, I love uni, but eating disorders is such an isolating illness. And because you're always so tired, so cold, you have no energy, all you can think about is food. Like, I missed out on so much at uni and I'm really, really determined to not let that happen again because recovery is a choice. You don't choose to have the eating disorder, but you can choose to recover. And yeah, I'm just really, really determined to make it work this time. And yeah, that's my story. 
honestly it's just incredible and there are, there are so many important things that you've said in that I don't even know where to start but also so many things I know we've spoken briefly about this before Bethany that you know that I've got um, yeah. somebody in my life who's very very special to me who has had an eating disorder mm. over the past few years and just their experiences of getting help in the first place and then the help that they've had after they've been discharged. It's something that I get really passionate about. Really, yeah, really, really emotional about because I think that there are a lot of problems with a lot of different healthcare systems and people care, but there's under-resourced and, and all, all sorts of things. And so we don't want to, I don't want to make it sound like I'm blaming anybody or that it's anybody's fault, but that thing that you said about your BMI was too high to get help. <laughs> Um, you know, and I think that so often, you know, the problem in a lot of eating disorders is that there is such a focus on weight. And so the solution can't be to focus on weight as well. But that so often is just how, how it is. And you said, Jess, that at the moment in this stage of your recovery, so much of your days revolve around food. But the problem was that before all of this started, your day started to revolve around food. <laughs> so it, yeah. it feels really and sounds really counterintuitive, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I'm really aware though that you guys have said that that is your experience at the moment and you're at a place in your recovery where lockdown is actually helping you yeah. but Jess you said that you're, you're really aware that lockdown is a really triggering time for a lot of people so I just wonder what you think some of you know some people might be really struggling with at, at different stages of, of this journey if they've got their own eating disorders or, or just any kind of issues with food and I suppose how lockdown might have affected you if it had happened you know a year ago or something like that I know like I think a year ago like I wouldn't have been coping the thing about eating disorders is people look for the physical actually they're complete their mental illness and actually I think even when I wasn't at a lower weight I think I was mentally the worst I think it's the fact that we're all kind of trapped in some way whether it's that people don't have work or whether it's that they've got kids around all the time, like all their all the norms, like every day is a Saturday for a lot of people, which is great if if you're if you're healthy and you love that. But if you're if you're not, it's it must be a really, really tricky time. And I mean like literally Instagram for me is just tends to be like flooded with like workout videos or people's like what they're eating. And actually the reality is what people show is the best of their day like or best of their week but like I definitely fall into the trap of thinking oh it'd be great if I look like that but it's it's a vicious cycle and it's not like dieting is never sustainable ever like that's the reality of it um I think there are two things that I would have really struggled with and like when I was really really ill like I had safe foods so like the fact that the supermarkets are like out of stock of things and like if if something disrupted the foods that I was going to eat, like it would be my day, like completely ruined. I'd really, really struggle to cope. I wouldn't know what to do. So I think like for people with eating disorders, when the illness makes you so rigid and routined, I think something like not having a food that you would be comfortable eating would definitely have thrown me off. And then another thing that's massively different is like the way the services are operating. So like Jess and I both are so, so fortunate to get therapy over the phone. But for some people, like they might hate phone calls. They might not do well. They might not be able to express themselves. Like for me, I don't even see my therapist's face. So I don't know what facial expression she's pulling. Like it's so hard to judge. So I think people who are an outpatient and getting therapy 
I think that's going to be really, really difficult in lockdown because it's very, very different to sitting face to face with someone and having a conversation. So, yeah, they're the things I think would have affected me massively if I was iller in lockdown. But there is help out there. Like, and both of us are examples of like how actually for us it's Cotswold House, but there's there's other places that actually like people in this time, actually people seem to be more aware of mental illnesses. The BEAT helpline, like it's increased, the calls have increased by 30%. So BEAT is like the UK eating disorder um, charity. And I think people are really making use of the helplines, which is great. Brilliant. And we'll put some information about BEAT in the show notes of this and share on social media as well. So if you're listening and you want to find out more about that, then just, just have a look there. Brilliant. Thanks, guys. I'm just wondering, that's what you feel like other people might be struggling with at the moment or what you might have been struggling with about a year ago. But at this stage in your recovery what kind of things add stress to your stress bucket? I think changes in structure for example if to put it in terms of like food <laughs> if my family plan to eat something and I'm like okay I, I can have that but then I guess back when there wasn't stuff in the shops if that had changed then like that would still still cause me to have like slight stress about it. Um, Bethany what was your because I think that's my main one yeah I would say like at the moment what I need is I need to eat breakfast at this time I need to eat lunch at this time but um some things in lockdown like zoom calls for example this we did it at one and I'd normally have my lunch at one which is like great practice (laughs) because like throwing you off of these routines it's normal life like we were saying like what if someone offers you a snack and you're like oh I can't have it because it's not snack time like so it's things like that, because I very much plan everything, like my meals as well. So like, I guess having so much time to let your brain kind of like run wild as well, like cause you've got so much extra time. So like the mental calculations involved in doing all of the meals and planning and like, oh, I could have this or I could have this, which is lower. Like, it's just, you've got so much time to be dwelling on that. And like, so I'll make a decision, tell my parents, and then I'll be overthinking it and regretting it. And just all these things that like, yeah, involves your brain just having so much time to think, which is not ideal. But for me, I've noticed like the further I've got on in my recovery, like the less and less it gets. So I think that's a, a real testament to saying like, once you throw yourself in, it does get easier. Like if someone had said that to me when I was ill, I would have been like, oh, like ignore them like I don't believe you like it's always going to be this hard like you just don't see a way out but it genuinely when you like throw yourself in it really really does get better and the only way you can get better is just practicing these things yeah I think that my experience of you know having people in my life um, and working with people who've had eating disorders is that as you move through recovery you do become more and more aware of what affects you and I don't know maybe you guys could explain whether you feel that earlier on it's that you kind of know that there's an issue or you know things are affecting you but you don't necessarily want to admit it or talk about it or whether you feel that you get to a stage where there's almost like a light bulb that goes on and you start to think oh, okay no that does stress me out and that does affect me in ways that I, I wasn't aware of before. Yeah I think I think Bethany and I probably can both um, say that we were in denial but I think I had a weird thing that took me a while to say that I had an eating disorder but once I said it I could say it very emotionlessly and actually saying it for me in some ways gave me almost permission 
to act as I was doing it. So it's weird because you are letting people know. And I think with someone who doesn't have an eating disorder would think, oh, well, that's less control for you, surely. But in a weird way, you can get more control. But I think I wanted help when I just didn't, I just didn't feel in control at all. And that, yeah, that was what triggered me to come home. I was just like, I can't, I can't balance both. It's not sustainable. I can't do what I want to do at uni, like whilst trying to calculate my day around food. I do think as well, like having a diagnosis, like it gives, it validates what you've always been struggling with. Mm. It's like someone goes, no, this is real. And I think there's such power in that. And then when you claim it and start telling other people, I think there's power in that too. And that takes time for different people in different ways. But certainly for me, that's kind of how I found that. For me, like all these things, when I start, so I start voicing like my irrational thoughts to Jess and she'll be like oh my goodness I think that too and like as soon as you like I say one thing and then like the next thing and like I think I'm the only one who could possibly be thinking such a crazy thing but then saying it out loud to someone who understands and they're like yeah that's totally there's a reason for that like and I feel that too is like really really valuable so definitely like talking there are people to talk to and like just voicing what you're feeling like it can be so so beneficial and it makes you feel less crazy (laughs) and less alone in what you're feeling but that's been really helpful for me like voicing it to Jess and like we were researching like 40% of people don't have a specific diagnosis with eating disorders and like we were both saying that's actually kind of annoying that we both have the same diagnosis because it's not like representative of all the different kinds of eating disorders there are like didn't we find out it was only like eight percent yeah that have anorexia and that's I think that's the illness that people know most about when it comes to eating disorders but it's just like there's so many different types that you can have atypical anorexia and not have any weight changes but you have the mentality of having an anorexia and unless you research it you don't know that that's there Mm. and I think a diagnosis I think is in so many ways is more detrimental than not having a diagnosis because it just becomes your identity and then it's not something you can part with very easily. I think what you said both of you actually that you when you look back you think oh I've always had I think Jess you said an interesting uh, relationship with food or you've always had a you know struggle with body image and I think that that would apply to so many people who will never meet criteria for a diagnosis of something from mental health services but so many people have elements of because what we'd call disordered eating that at some point could become more serious but so many of those things are just completely normalized in our society and when you said earlier um, I think it, Bethany you said you were congratulating yourself for losing weight But society does that. You know, people tell you how amazing you look if you've lost weight. So what kind of message is that giving that that's what makes you look great and that's what makes people value you? It's it's so damaging. I remember being um being in Tesco and looking looking at the chocolate aisle. I was gonna make brownies and I was gonna put some sort of chocolate bar on top and I couldn't decide which one. And somebody that I knew very vaguely from the gym. Um, I don't think we'd ever had a conversation before, but we went to like some of the same gym classes, walked behind me and she came up to me. She was probably about 20 years older than me. And she said, Oh, you don't want to be having any of that. It's harder to lose as you get older. 
And the person in my life who's had an eating disorder had literally just that week been being discharged from an inpatient unit. And I wanted to shout at her and I wanted to say, if I was this other person, I'd be right back in within a week. You know, you people don't think, people don't know how some of these offhand comments or pictures that they might post online or any of that kind of stuff could affect people. So that's my little rant. No, 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 I totally agree. And I think like the thing you were saying about people congratulating you, like, because I would do dancing shows when I was younger and people would always say like, oh my goodness, you've got such a small waist. Like you look really good. And like, it became in my mind, I was like, that's my identity. That's what I need to live up to. So I became obsessed with like keeping this tiny figure, which means it says nothing about who I am as a person. Like it doesn't define me at all. Like the way I look, I don't, my friends don't pick me because of how much I weigh. Like they pick me for my like other attributes that I have that define me and make me like the person I am. And it's not anything to do with my weight. Yeah. And society validates it. Like they validate this idea that you have to be the smallest you can. You have to be the most productive you can. And like the reality is even if you don't have an eating disorder, like that picture in your head that you think you're going to have when you die, it's never going to be true. Even if it does become true, it's never going to be enough because we're human. Like we crave to look a certain way, like it's, it's fairly normal, but it's just, I know, I feel like society just tells us that we should, we should want to look different. We should want to be different to who, who we actually are. And like, that's just, it's just not, not fair and I think um I was reflecting whilst we were talking one of the few I wouldn't call it a fight but one of the few things that Becca and I have ever sort of half fallen out about is is about losing weight I have always been um overweight I've pretty good sense of self-esteem so it's never been uh, something I've struggled with but I have always been bigger and uh, particularly more recently from a health point of view, I have been advised that I need to lose some weight and that's okay. And I, I am very fortunate that mentally I can live in a place where I can do that without becoming obsessed with it. And I'm, I'm aware of how fortunate I am that, that my brain doesn't do that, but it does mean that through the years of our friendship, I have tried various diets. And, um, I think cause Becca of, cause of her experience with, um, the person in her life, she has always been very conscious that I shouldn't be obsessed with that. And I do find it quite difficult when I lose weight because I, because, you know, medically health wise, it would be good for me to do so or I get fitter and healthier, but people then put an awful lot of uh, weight on weight. (laughs) They put an awful lot of emphasis on numbers and on size. And um, I hate exercise, Becca knows that, but actually talking about being healthier and fitter is a much better way to view it for me than lighter smaller and I think sometimes the language can make a real a real Mm -hmm. difference but I I I think the thing that makes me get angry um when health professionals say you need to lose weight to be healthier is that they could instead of saying you need to lose weight to be healthier they could say you need to improve your health and these are the kind of things that will help you to improve your health if you end up losing weight as a result of that fine if you don't but your health has still improved, fine. But where they start is by saying, if you lose weight, then your health will improve. Mm-hmm. And they fo- yeah, it's all focusing on the numbers because like you said, Jess, it's all about what you can see, it's easy. And you, there are so many other markers of health, but they are more difficult to come by. 
and some of them you can't see and can't see very easily or without invasive testing so it's it's an easy thing for people to just say you need to gain weight or you need to lose weight and as i can't remember sorry bethany or jess you were saying not address any of that stuff that's happening underneath it all of the the therapy part is so huge isn't it to understand what what else needs to happen for you to be okay and i think we could all talk for hours about how pointless uh the phrase bmi is we even get us started (laughs) i think you guys can can hear in my voice (laughs) and uh obviously listen as you can't see but these three can see in my face that that this filled my bucket a little bit and kind of with with righteous anger uh, I think about our systems but when when do you guys notice that your buckets are filling up at the moment what are the signs for you that you're starting to you know not feel okay again Mm, I think just being more stressed like if if I feel like I can very I do feel anxiety quite physically like I used to get really weird like spots on my hands when it was exams it was it was weird so like if something if like physically I know my chest feels tighter or something like I'll know that there's something not quite right and I think in if lockdown wasn't happening when I get stressed I like to busy my life up so I will say yes to anything and everything um, which is a side problem um but I think that's my like immediate like kind of reaction I just want to distract myself from it like that's the only way I really like try and cope Mm. I think definitely I think for me like at the moment because lockdown lockdown has really helped me get into a steady routine and now things are starting to open up and suddenly like we're allowed to see people again I find that quite stressful at the moment because I'm so I've got myself into a good rhythm so when like people are starting to see each other and do more zoom calls and I just get quite overwhelmed quite quickly because my life has been quite like slow suddenly like the change of pace and the fact that I've got to balance like people and my recovery that at the moment is quite difficult for me so I definitely notice my bucket filling up when I have to start changing my routine and switching it up and committing to other things Um, but I think that's quite normal in recovery I guess like because it is a lot to like Jess and I are both evidence of the fact that you can't do uni and recovery at the same time it's just not possible so I guess when it's having a lot to juggle that definitely makes me more stressed yeah and the people close to you when do they notice that your bucket's filling up do they notice things that you don't um I I either go really really quiet and I'm not that quiet a person (laughs) or I get really really cranky and anything particularly my family anything that my family do that's not actually bad like will make me say something or I know I'll just I'll probably be cranky and then withdraw is my (laughs) probably how people can be that I'm not um coping yeah definitely and I think like for me I kind of always use food as a maladaptive coping mechanism so like when things start to go wrong like my first response is like to restrict but now I'm like kind of learning better ways to deal with that like by because I'm not very good at like talking to people when I'm struggling but I'm definitely getting better at it and using 
these more helpful and practical techniques to deal with my stress and deal with all my anxiety instead of turning to food to control that. So I think I'm the same as Jess, like I'd probably withdraw or get really, really angry. But then like I'm better at having conversations about it before it actually escalates to that point. So yeah, I guess it's just a learning curve. (laughs) And what is that point now for you where you think, oh, I need to do something about it before the stress starts to build anymore? Um, It's when I get the self-destructive thoughts, like I'll get them in my mind and then I'm I'm quite good at recognising them now and identifying like, oh, that's not a thought of your mind. Like that's a lie. You don't need to do that. You don't need to like give in to whatever behaviour. So I'll identify the thought and then like go and distract myself, speak to my mum, tell Jess, like tell someone else what's going on so they can like help me rationalise and say like, no that's coming from your eating disorder that's not you yeah I think I'm the same but I think like Bethany and I were talking about this the other day that actually you can't when you are underweight you can't rationalize Mm. um, at all so actually your ability to recognize when you're like when your bucket is overflowing like completely goes out of the window so I think because we've managed to get healthier like physically it means that mentally we can be healthier but yeah it's it's impossible to be rational when your body is starving and just screaming all the time and the fact that both of us have been sent back to uni when we weren't physically meant to be there is is really bad and it's not it's not fair because it actually makes you feel dreadful that you haven't managed to cope like because you've had to lose your independence but actually you're not you're not biologically meant to be able to cope if you're not fueling yourself like that's that's just a human fact so I think what I've learned is that the basic (laughs) truths and basic facts of life actually do apply and um no one is exempt (laughs) from them (laughs) we're all human yeah and that's a massive part of the problem isn't it that Bethany you said you need to be in a place where you're choosing to recover where you feel ready to recover and but your brain uses so much energy it is such an incredible complex organ 500 calories your brain needs in a day yeah so if you're suddenly on a deficit never mind the rest of your body but your brain is going to be one of those things that parts of it just start saying well I can't use this energy anymore because it needs to go to other places in order to keep me going so being able to be in that rational place where you can choose and understand the value in you recovering we're asking something from people in that moment that like you suggest they're just not able to give I'm aware then that that's one of the really difficult things probably for friends and family of people who are experiencing eating disorders that they can see a situation and are desperately trying to help the person that the person can't necessarily see it for themselves are there any tips pieces of advice that you could give people who might be supporting someone with an eating disorder or just concerned that someone might have an eating disorder to know how to go about that um ask them like don't be afraid of the eating disorder because if someone had broken their leg you'd ask how they were like and just because it's a mental illness it's it's not anything different and I think it's not an attention seeking illness but it is a cry for help normally and I think getting help from people that you love can actually be equally as valuable as getting help from like professionals because then you you know that you've 
you've got their support and you know you know that they've noticed that you're struggling and that you're not actually okay and that's okay but I know I found it worse when I just I was like I felt so alone and didn't feel that anyone understood or knew what to say so I think just ask the person and if they don't want to talk about it it's not your fault but asking is probably the easiest and the best way to help someone definitely and like my family are amazing like I definitely wouldn't be where I am without my family and I think it's important to know that like when I was really ill nothing they could do was right like they wouldn't ask and I'd be angry at them for not asking they'd ask and I'd be angry at them for asking like they couldn't get it right and it's just important to know that like it's not anyone's fault it's not a court like no family caused the eating disorder like it's not bad parenting it's like a genetic like in it's way your brain is wired like it's no one's fault and I think just being really gentle and encouraging and like celebrating the victories as well even if they're really tiny small steps um and knowing that you can't do anything to you can't fix the person like it's so easy to look for a method to get rid of the eating disorder and try and want them to be better and fix them but like there's no quick fix to recovering from an eating disorder it's definitely a process um so just having the patience to like support them along the way and know that recovery isn't linear there are going to be ups and downs and it's just like being there throughout all of it and yeah just listening and being encouraging but it's very very tiring to live with someone with an eating disorder so anyone supporting people with an eating disorder like hats off to you because it's very very exhausting that's a really important point for you to make actually thank you bethany that i think families often feel really blamed i know definitely in um in cams eating disorder services and maybe in adult services family therapy is Mm. is is one of the therapies that's really advised and i think that families parents can see that as oh it's because it's our fault somehow we need to um, there's something wrong with our family and that's why our daughter or son has an eating disorder but it's more to do with like you say the fact that you can't really recover from this on your own you need an incredible amount of support and your family needs support in order to be able to support you and so it needs to have that family approach so you know if anybody gets that advice to have some family support um see it as an offer of help and support and not of blame definitely and i've been in two different units and one unit offered a lot more so they'd call my parents all the time they'd keep them really involved they keep them updated and my parents way way preferred that the fact that they could be involved and they did know what's going on and that they were being given opportunities to like get help and it's equally as important to get like like siblings could need support and parents like there are loads of places out there for parents to get help so we could we could probably like link some information for family if that's yeah and also it'll depend what stage of life you're in like I think for me initially like friends were the support network that I relied on but that was because I was at uni but then now I'd like rely on both my family and friends and like it's it's okay to need different groups of people for different things that's healthy but one thing I would say for those that are helping try and educate yourself on it because 
it's it's not all about weight at all weight is just a side effect of whichever way it goes in the spectrum and actually sometimes just knowing the basic things to look out for like really really helps and honestly when I saw that my family had a book about eating disorders like that that made my day like it like it made me just feel like so happy that they were educating themselves and going out of their way but yeah I think it's so easy to get the education from Dr Google as unhelpful as Google can be but it can be like the Beat website is great like it has so much help there. I think if you, you know, like you said if you look in the right kind of places that makes a a big difference but it is all the information's at our fingertips isn't it so if we can take the time to do that then then that's amazing just kind of uh, having talked a little bit about lockdown and time that we've got what are maybe some of the things that you guys find helpful in terms of emptying your bucket the kind of self-care things that we talk about I think for both of us it's a lot of like we rely on each other quite a lot and we just we're like we'll do like snack challenges together which like are honestly like the highlight of my week and we'll we might go for a walk or we might just like sit and chat but and sometimes we also journal as well but I think we both want to emphasize that like rest is completely okay at this time like you don't need to be out exercising all the time like rest is sometimes the best medicine for for anyone but particularly someone with an eating disorder and my um therapist makes me do this thing when so I have a journal I'm not very good at journaling so she said try and do this thing where you write down one positive thing that you've done for yourself in the day so like all these tiny little it could be the smallest thing but all of these little things add up to like and then you make come so far and been so kind to yourself and yeah and you can really start to see a difference and like these tiny things I look back on it and I'm like oh look how much progress I've made since I was doing that for myself and yeah and it's definitely for someone with an eating disorder I think self-care is often quite difficult so it's just really really trying to push yourself and do like look after yourself and yeah and I've been doing a lot of reading as well which is really nice and yeah like Jess said just going on walks like finding something you love I've started doing music again which I loved before I got ill so it's really nice to like play the piano again and get some of my old hobbies back but yeah definitely the journaling thing I would definitely recommend yeah but we both rely on therapists as well so I think you kind of need a combination of like other people mm. and like I have two therapists who, who are amazing and yeah they're another highlight of my week but I think, you know, self-care doesn't just have to be about the things that you do to look after yourself. It's about allowing other people to look after you as well. And I think that is something that we don't always, always recognise. I think you're right, slowing down. We've talked on the podcast before about being busy, being this badge of honour. But actually, like, I'll often have a conversation where, like with my housemate, one of us will go, oh, I've literally done nothing today. I feel so unproductive. And I have to change my mindset and go, no the way I've been productive is that I've done nothing. That's a really positive thing that I have taken the time to rest and just, you know, watch a film or read a book or that is productive. Looking after yourself, resting is productive. And I think that is such a different mindset to be in. And I think when we haven't got things filling our time in terms of job and 
social things we find it quite hard we feel like we have to continue filling our time somehow but actually you can fill your time with nothing that is an equally valid thing to do definitely i'm just wondering whether there's anything that we haven't covered that you guys would really like to say i think i want to emphasize that it's not just girls that have eating disorders mm. actually like another thing we found out when we researched that it's 25 percent of cases that have that are male which in i think in both of our units that we've been in there's only one bed for for a guy and it's like it's rarely filled which is actually just really concerning more than anything but yeah it's eating disorders don't discriminate they will latch on to anyone whether it's a girl or boy whether you're unpopular or popular it doesn't matter who you are I believe that there is a genetic factor but actually there's a social factor so I think anyone could potentially develop an eating disorder and that's what's I think probably one of the scariest parts of it. Following on from that like I've been in a unit like there's obviously CAMS units, so teenagers, but I've been in a unit with a 70 year old woman. Like it's, it doesn't, like Jess is saying, it doesn't discriminate, it doesn't affect anyone. And I was shocked that like, yeah, it's just crazy how they don't have like a typical, cause like everyone thinks the stereotypical person of developing an eating disorder, even like staff members in the unit have said to me, like you just fit the stereotype, but there shouldn't be a stereotype. And like, I think that's one of the problems with like look, people talking about eating disorders is just like the lack of awareness of the breadth of the illness as well as like the depth and stuff so I think really really educating yourself on how many people can get an eating disorder and it just doesn't always have to look a certain way yeah thank you so much I don't even know how to start thanking you and I'm really going to enjoy listening to all of that again there was just so much good stuff there I think it's going to be so helpful for people listening. So thank you so, so much. Thank you for having us. And we're very grateful to have the opportunity to share our story and hopefully it can help. Yeah, I really think it will. To anybody listening, if you have an eating disorder, think that you might be struggling with an eating disorder, if you're supporting someone who has an eating disorder, we'd really encourage you, if you're not already getting some support, to reach out to your friends or your family or a charity like BEAT, um, go and see your GP, reach out to us if you want to, just like Bethany and Jess have said, um, there's a lot of support out there for you, for people supporting you. So yeah, get some. Thank you everybody for listening and we hope you'll join us next time. Goodbye. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to A Drop in the Bucket. If you want to connect with us on social media, you can find us on Instagram at dropinthebucketpod or Twitter at dropbucketpod. Alternatively, you could email us on dropinthebucketpod at gmail.com. It would be great to hear from some of you about what fills and empties your bucket or any questions that you might have for us or our future guests. We hope you'll tune in next week.